Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, we're delighted to have Tanya Anaisi on our podcast. Tanya is the founder and CEO of Beitna Design, a founding creator of Liberatory Design, a founding member of the Equity Design Collaborative, former faculty at the National Equity Project, and a former lecturer at the Stanford D School. She has built a way of practicing design that helps organizations translate equity values into equitable products, programs, and cultures. She's an expert content creator and facilitator with over a decade of experience working globally. Tanya is a graduate of Stanford University's product design program, an advisor in Stanford's design impact program, and a starting block fellow. Enjoy. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Tanya Anaisi. She's the founder and CEO of Beitna Design. Tanya, welcome. Thank you. It's fun to be here. We're so happy to have you here. We've been looking forward to this for a while. So please tell us about yourself. Oh, yes. What to say? Well, I am calling in today from San Francisco. I'm based in, in the Bay Area in California. And I am a designer by training. I graduated from the product design program at Stanford and have since been obsessed with how to use design to be a force for liberation, to support justice and liberation movements. That's a bit about me. I also grew up between Arkansas in the U.S. and Lebanon, where my family's friends spent a lot of summers in the mountains of Lebanon and in Beirut. Um, and I have two cats that if you're watching on video, you will see. I love that. I always like in your videos or in our calls, I see one wandering around in a very nonchalant way. Like I aspire to be that. So that's very motivating <laughs> for me at the moment. Well, you said some very big words in there and also other things that we would aspire to. So tell us why, especially the word like liberation and that kind of came into play for you and how that evolved into also Beitna's work. I think growing up in Arkansas, um, especially as an Arab American family after 9-11, the, there was a lot of confusion and hurt around how people were treating us and how people perceived us. Um, you know, very outright things like bullying at school or my mom's a physician and patients would say like, oh, I don't want to see her. I don't want to see the foreign doctor. And so there was a lot of like very overt experiences growing up that that felt like both, you know, people's behavior, but also systems, like the way that schools would process discipline and how they would perceive my brother as quote unquote, like dangerous for doing normal child things. And there were a lot of issues that at the time it sort of felt like, why is this happening? Is this our fault? Like what's going on? And I had a lot of confusion and hurt about it. And as I got older, I really started to understand how these systems work, how narrative is formed, you know, especially about Arab Americans in this case after 9-11 in the media and how that fits in with our culture and our history of race. So I think that was the beginning was sort of like, I love my family. I love my community. Why is this happening to us? And learning about other liberation movements and other communities who have built wonderful joy-filled resistance movements. And I felt like, yes, I want that. And I want to understand that. And simultaneously, I was at school studying design. So that's when I was having both both of these little epiphanies. <laughs> like, oh, design is so powerful, but there's some things that aren't sitting right with me. And then simultaneously, like if I want to do work that contributes to the movements to change things for people like me and my family, 
and we're, those we're in solidarity with, like how, how was the big question for years, how to do both. I, I love that so much. And I feel like um, this is something I experienced in a similar but different way where um, I, I grew up in U.S. And then, oh, sorry, I was born in U.S., grew up in Turkey, I'm Turkish American. And then I moved back to U.S. after college and I spent a year in St. Louis. And I outright experienced where um, at my other Turkish friends who, like, I, we, were, we would hang out together in Turks and I would be perceived as the American because maybe I have more acceptable looks for, looks for Americans. And then my other Turkish friends were like, oh, you're Turkish friends. I'm like, wait, I'm, I'm Turkish too, right? So, <laughs> so, I, so I straight up like experienced that just by like looks, like the different um, interactions I would experience even though I identified as same and how much that just like impacted, right? Just because you look a little different, you're like, you're not part of us. And it was like, so, and experiencing that in my like twenties was so weird and it was so uncalled for and I didn't expect that. And then that, that was just like, a, wow, like how much. And then, and then I, we had conversations with like my other Turkish American friends who were born and raised in U.S. and mm. they shared their own experiences growing up and if they had more like darker skin dark hair they the way they grew up was like completely different than mine so yeah so I, I definitely understand and relate but like also like my experience was a complete contrast just because I don't know like I somehow fit in like American standards or <laughs> like but I love I love so that hard you're in like design space too, because then you're kind of the like design opens up the way and it's always constructive, right? So it starts talking about solutions and some suddenly this is not like a problem anymore. This is a challenge that you can address. Um, so I would love to hear how, I guess like, so you had your personal experience and then you're learning of the power of design and they started to like come together. So how did this like, I guess, start shaping up in design action? Ooh. So when I was having these big epiphanies, it was after, after I graduated from the program, I was working at the D school, which is like a design thinking hub at Stanford. I was teaching classes there and managing some programs. I worked there for three years. I think that's where all the epiphanies were happening as well. Mm. I was actually teaching and doing consulting work um, on the side. And that's where I had some doubts when I was a student, like, it doesn't sit right. You know, you would hear things like people don't know what they want. You have to tell them what they want or, um, you know, just failure is a natural part of design, which I do think is true, but often we would fail and hurt people. And it was just kind of like, Oh, we're just, we're just trying things out. And it did. So there's a lot of things that didn't feel right. Um, yeah. but when I started teaching and doing my own projects in the real world and connecting with people who've been in the industry longer than me, it started to feel like, Oh no, wait, there's some real tensions here. Um, and so that question became, at the time, it felt like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like, what, do I even believe in design anymore? It felt like more of a crisis at the time. <laughs> but in retrospect, I call it R&D. It was research and development. <laughs> I love that. You were incubating. Yeah. Yes. Didn't feel that way. But yeah, so I was connecting with anyone else in the U.S. There was a group of us that found each other. It eventually became the Equity Design Collaborative. But we just pieced together, like someone had an article 
someone posted something here. And so we started pulling each other, like connecting with each other online. There are people in Florida, St. Louis, DC, obviously Bay Area. Um, and so one of them organized to have us do monthly calls and just talk about like, what are you thinking about? What are you building? And folks were across the spectrum. Some folks had already been working at it for a couple of years. Some people were new. And so that became the first affirming like, yes, no, this is a thing. Other people believe in it. There are other ways to practice. Um, I'm totally losing track of your question, but I think that's the point when <laughs> that was your action. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. But great. No, it, it, it's great because you, I mean, it's still, we're talking about a similar problem, but just like different contexts, right? So you experienced um, kind of like how differences kind of lead, could lead to like exclusion um, in a more like social level growing up, right? But then when you got into design, the field itself, exactly to your point, is the best field for you to be in, especially to like address challenges. But at the same time, there are inherent problems in the field itself, right? So um, while you think like, yay, now I have all the tools and I can save the world, like suddenly you're like, oh, wait, I'm not being hired right now. Like what's happening? <laughs> Right, like my my partner is a Turkish British, and he um, he's an architect, and he he talks about you know like you could show up to a room with a Scandinavian accent and say you're a designer, you're like accepted, right? Like, mm. <laughs> but like there's no like worldwide known or thought about like Turkish architects or whatever that mm. they. So we have these like perceptions or ideals or even idols that we create in the design field that kind of kind of dilutes the purpose of what we try to do in design in general mm. right and to your point too exactly like design technically encourages failure and then you're like if you fail like I mean I don't know if, if any of the listeners here like went into like an architectural critic right <laughs> like so it's like slammed like models and people like Oof. crying and harsh <laughs> words being said like so you got well wait where are we supposed to fail? <laughs> oh, that hurts the heart. I've only witnessed one critique of such magnitude. I remember thinking, I remember thinking like, this is not how humans should treat each other. This is not helpful in any way. No one is learning. People are just crying. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, um, there's, there was this post like recently I read, um, if you believe like you have to be an asshole, uh, to be like an asshole to be like a successful leader or to like inspire people, you might just be an asshole. Um, because, like, there's, the... there's a huge difference between being demanding and demeaning. And I think that was like, yes. And I think it's a field very fill, uh, filled with ego as well, right? Mm. That mm. translates into so many different ways. And I don't know if this like aggression or ego is like also a way of like us trying to cover up our insecurities or all the nerve wracking things about the design field too, because design is like being in the gray. You're like comfortable with like ambiguous stuff. You may not be right, right? Like you have to have self-security and go out there and ideate and throw out ideas into the world and they might be very stupid ideas, but you have to have that um, bravery to do that. So um, maybe. Like, I would love to get your quick thoughts on this, how this field kind of morphed the space, how, like, this feels kind of, like, suddenly converted into a space of, like, um, showcasing and um, stardom, um, while yeah. the main purpose of the field has always been, like, let's come up with 
designs and solutions for the world and for the people or for the planet, right? So I don't know, any speculations you have on that, like when and how that happened, that called for liberation, I'd love to hear. Um, but I don't know if you also like, still to this day experience this a little bit, even though it feels like overall it's, things are changing. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking, what a good question. It's a good question about how it happened. I'm not sure. I do remember feeling like that's something that felt a bit icky when I was learning design and practicing design. In particular, we can't really execute any of these projects or come up with any of these ideas without working with people who have lived experience, right? Who know the problem, unfortunately, usually, <laughs> because they've had to. Exactly. And, um, but I would go to design conferences and people would present about these amazing projects and what a cool job they did, but then they wouldn't ever talk about the people they interviewed or that they worked with on the ground. And it was sort of this like, I'm the designer, I'm fancy. I mean, even to apply to jobs, you've seen the requirement for the portfolio. It's always like, what did you do on this project? How did you make this great? And it's, it's almost like inviting this erasure of like, yeah, I did this by myself. Design is inherently collaborative, but like, don't worry about that. Just, but I'm a genius. Not that are, yeah, I'm a genius, which honestly is like what they're asking you to prove in the job interview. They're like, well, show us how you made this great. And so I feel like that's such a hard part of the, like, yes, how do you show how you can contribute on a team, but without the stardom, it is definitely, I mean, even within our field, within the equity design world, I think that naturally happens. Like people want to follow someone that they believe in, that they hear interesting things from. Mm -hmm. But that's something I love about just, I don't know, the nature of how large the world is and how much ideas move. Like I think when we were first working on the Equity Design Collaborative, it felt sort of lonely within our pod and it felt sort of niche. Like I would go to design conferences and present and people would kind of be like, hmm. <laughs> over the history of design... <laughs> I remember learning in my design program, which I loved, we did this class that talked about the different eras of design, how each, like many eras across the world had their own manifestos of like, this yeah. is what design is. And then 10 years later, no, this is what design is. And so I felt like, oh, this is part of our field. This is just like, you know, when the world changes, when cultures change, we reinvent design. But that, I don't think that's how it was received. We got a lot of pushback on like, like, this is cool if it's a project, you know, working with poor people or with like racism, oh. Oh. but this is like, you know, versus like, how do we move the field forward? But now I feel like the tenor's really changed. Um, speaking to like moving away from the idols, there is, obviously there's liberatory design, which I co-created. There's equity center community design, design justice, restorative design, environment first design, right? Like you're nodding your head. We could write a list of like 50, 60 different yeah. kinds across the world. And that to me is very exciting because it means that we have more micro leaders, right? In different regions, different parts of the world that are presenting ideas and other people are taking it. Like I met someone at a conference recently who was like, hi, I'm a liberatory designer. I was like, oh my God, I don't know you. I've never met you. I love you. But like, you're you. <laughs> this is awesome. And then every time someone emails us that they're using the card deck, we're like, how, how did you change it? What did you do to make it better? So I do feel there is like a larger, I'm curious if you would agree in what you're seeing in your pocket of the design world. But I feel like there is more of an opening of like, we can own this, we can democratize this. It's hopefully less about like the hero or the firm, you know, there's always like yeah. the design firm and more like, oh, now here's the whole database. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm definitely seeing that shift where we're moving from a world of like the Louis Vuittons and Chanel's to just like, um, 
more like looking into meaning really like what are they doing really like more zooming into the work than the name the flashy names mm-hmm. um, and i see that across like various different fields um and there's a notion of like not design for but with more mm-hmm. and more i think those are happening so and i in that sense i also feel like there is less education and definitely more acceptance and like open ideation around like what we're talking about right to your point exactly when you went to like conferences a few years ago and you're not even like long ago right like several years ago you're talking about like the virtual design people are maybe just like and then like now they're like oh right so (laughs) that is that is great um how that translates into work in industries I feel like we're just at the beginning now, right? Like there's so much to do because there are so many inherent existing archaic systems in place that needs to change. So whatever whatever we're working on feels like mini interventions at this point. And there's a lot to be done. I don't know if you feel the same. And I, I would love to hear yeah. your experience on like how the conversation has evolved for you, where you were like straight on education and raising awareness, potentially on like liberatory design to now working on to active projects, see how those projects translate really into action. Yes, I think so around that R&D time where I was co-creating liberatory design and me and five others, it was David, Susie, Tom and Victor. We um, created this card deck and that was our first like, this is what we think. There's, you know, ways of being and doing design, but there's also mindsets that guide how you what what do we believe is good design? How do we show up as designers? And then after we created that original framework, we all went back to our organization and sort of developed it on our own. So I'll speak to the like beta design version of liberatory design that we've built. And working with partners, that started at the same time too as when beta started, was immediately I was like, okay, this is great in theory. Like, what can I do with partners? And then also like, what do they need and what is helpful to them? So then that was like a second maturity level of R&D, which is like, how do we, to your point, actually do this? And how is it helpful and how is it not helpful? Um, and I think there's like a couple levels of impact. One, sometimes working at scale, like if it's a tech company we're working with some or, you know, a bank, the scale is so high that it's like, if we can change just how user researchers connect with the community when they're designing products, or if we can just change how much they involve people in the, in the choices and the designs and the implications, um, we have this concept at design, we built a tool called a beta design called safe to fail which is like, how do we fail in a way that's not going to hurt people emotionally, physically, financially? Like, how do we, if you can change small things at scale, that feels like, wow, that could have a very large impact, whether that's on number of people or amount of harm reduced. Um, And then there's also where we go deep. So some of the partners we work with, a lot of nonprofits or maybe foundations are saying, we want to change our org culture. So how do we solve problems? How do we partner with people that have lived experience? We want to fundamentally change how we work, basically, right? Because the status quo is not working for us. And then how we use liberatory design is like, we're going to work with them for six months, sometimes two years to build their design capacity for all the projects and challenges they face to use this equitable design process. So it's interesting because there's both on one side designers being like, we want to change our practice. We're not getting the outcomes we want. It doesn't feel right. And so we jump in and help them with like the nitty gritty of the process. And then on the flip side, I mean, people who are like, I'm kind of new to design, but I care about doing liberation work. 
Libertary design is a way to do that. Awesome. Teach me how to do design. So it's like working with people who are deep in the design world and who are very new. And those are kind of our two levels of impact to both. And honestly, at this point, it'll probably be this way until I retire. I feel like every project is an experiment, right? It's like, oh, that worked really well when they went deep. They changed five programs and policies versus like, oh, actually we changed one thing over here at scale. And now, you know, 2 million users are impacted. So I don't necessarily have yet a rubric of like, this is what I want to see happen. I'm just like, if people are interested, people are going to work hard. I think wherever I can help. My vision is like, if I can add a drop in the river of social justice movements in my lifetime, that will have been a great success. So I'm trying to figure out where's the place to drop. I know. Oh my God. So many of the things you're saying here is like resonating in like so many different <laughs> ways. I think like as a person, I like I have like a, I have tendency to have a systemic view, like systems view, which could be very paralyzing at times. And I always mm. like, that's like a motto. I say to myself, like one over zero, right? Like one over zero, you do one thing that's greater than zero. And that's like progress and you need to acknowledge progress. Um, and I think, yeah, I feel like in these fields, especially as we're also like paving the way of what designing with and design by looks like, right? Um, I feel like the more I get into it, the more I feel like a student. Like <laughs> that's why I like call myself a forever student. Like I don't think, yes, you can be like an expert uh, on like the process maybe. And, um, and you might have like a Rolodex of case studies, but I feel exactly like you where I'm like, I don't know if we can ever say like this is right or wrong, especially how you see things can change when they're like culture specific or community specific or human specific. Right. Um, and I think what you touched upon in terms of like working with like corporations, too, I think we have to kind of also like move away from like the general public tendency is to be like, oh, these cool new companies or design studios or like young brands are doing these like cool stuff. And like, yeah, the corporate is evil and they're like old school and whatever. But <laughs> corporations have the potential, they bring in the potential for us to scale what we're trying to do, right? And make the much broader conversation. And that's huge power, right? Because in mm -hmm. the end, we could be doing all the coolest stuff and try to advocate for things. And we would be in our tiny, like <laughs> 10, 20 people, like groups and teams. And it won't reach that far. And I think corporations have the power to really take the conversation far and mm. highlighting that collaboration and the need for working with like not only different nonprofits and CBOs and organizations, but also corporations and all these parties who may not really be familiar with these terms or have an idea how they might incorporate into their like day-to-day -day processes. It's still very, very crucial. And I feel like I don't know if you feel the same way, like the navigation of that is the unspoken project. Like if there's a project on like liberatory design, the corporate navigation and how to implement it is like the bigger project that nobody talks about. <laughs> I don't know if you feel that way. Oh, yes. <laughs> like this yes. is something I wish like somebody would tell me like in that, when I'm in school, you know, like these are the I feel like anyone like going into these like fields. I think there are so many nuances and ways of working we can learn on that I think goes even more further than my personal knowledge on theories of generative design, you know? Totally. I hear that. I'm very much, I have a mentor, Mario Lugai, who started this platform called Giving Side. And Mario will say like, we're always here to work with the angelic troublemakers, which is like, yes, there's this big company, but if they're 
I say we choose people to partner with less so the company. Like, of course that does matter. We heavily consider that, but um, if there's a group of people who are trying to push as far as they can and align to our values and have a lot of internal influence then like, hell yeah, we're going to get in there and try. Like, I really hope it works. It's possible. It doesn't, but and we've seen that in some of the biggest companies in the world, people, you know, who care a lot about justice, about supporting their users, radically changing how they could benefit, especially in tech, like really rethinking, could we be of immense value to the world? Can we support human growth and healing? Um, if those people are willing to push hard and get things done, like we're so there. That's, that's my belief system. It's like, I'm glad to help. And if it doesn't work, like we'll learn as much as we can. The, the caveat there this connects to something you said earlier is also like it, you know, but with a mindfulness of not creating harm, it's not like going to go in there and be like, Oh, well, didn't work. You know, it's like, how are we, we're very vigilant along the way of how do we experiment in a way that's safe, push as much as we can, but not leaving it worse than it was. So yeah, I'll pause there. I could say a lot more about that, but I, I, I'm, I'm pro working with companies yeah. if you big companies, if you find people that you think are willing to push and work hard then it's like, cool, we can move at scale, like you're saying. Definitely. And it's, you're, you're so right. Like in the end, you know, it's not like when you when you say it's almost like instead of like naming the certain politicians who are messing up a country, we just say a country's name It's kind of like that the corporation. But then like when you zoom in, there's so many lovely people working in these like companies that are well-intentioned, want to do the right thing. They just maybe don't have the internal mechanisms or the system that they are in is not allowing them to do so. So I think we see there's more openness for collaboration with smaller studios and companies by corporations, which I think is necessary. Uh, and thankfully that happen is happening more, right? Because I think traditionally like big company collaborates with big agency, that's not necessarily translating in outcomes that are that authentic, right? But as we're seeing this shift happening, you see people are open and they're open to learn too. Um, and yeah, like, and to your point, the safe to fail experimentation, right? Like whatever you're doing is not working already. Right? Yes, <laughs> correct. Let's, let's try this way. But I love that you mentioned harm. And I also want to like unpack what like harm means, because I think it's not only about like, I feel like in a, in a corporate lens, harm is like, oh, like we, we lost money on this and it didn't result mm. in a big PR blowout, right? But harm could also mean like, I mean, especially when you work with underserved or overlooked communities, so many of these communities, people go them, ask questions and leave and yes, does not result in anything. So there is this lot of historic baggage and trauma and distrust towards larger institutions. So by simply, again, doing a research and going asking a bunch of questions, not compensating people's times, and then mm -hmm. um, not resulting in something is also harm, right? So I think we need to kind of like, maybe this should be like an open conversation too, because the world that we live in calls for more and more safe to fail experimentation, right? Because we're in a much more complex world today. And the only way we can solve problems is by probing and seeing if things are working. So um, we have to also acknowledge though, like, okay, let's define what safe to fail is and what define what harm could be, especially considering the communities that we're working with. 100%, I love it. And like, we'll never able, you know, as much as we plan, it's probably impossible to say, we have predicted every potential way this could go wrong ever. 
and we have mitigated all of them. Like that's also not what we're saying. But I think right now there's such a rush to release, to push, to profit that it's just sort of like totally overlooked, you know, or even in the digital world, it's like, let's just push this feature and see how it works. And then it really messes things up. And they're like, ah, I guess that didn't work. But then what happens to all the people that got hurt? So yeah, I think there's something oh, we in between. Launched, the, launched an entire product and completely missed that part. <laughs> like, yeah, I think those are like two, like in real estate, you see it's like so lagging, it's not even funny. And then in like tech, you see everything is like out there tomorrow where you miss on so many things. So we kind of like need to slow down intentionally, but also not to the point that we are like curbing innovation and progress, right? So totally that balance. And I feel, do you, I'm sure you feel the same way, but the more you have a diverse collaborative party that naturally that balance happens, right? Because everybody has their own pace. Totally. Yeah. Right. A good way to like mitigate it. hundred percent. It helps so much. Plus, it's like people are catching things. People can speak to different experiences. It's so helpful. And it's really, yeah, it doesn't, it does. I feel like also the solutions and ideas are just better. You know, like it's like, oh, well, if we're going to slow down, if we co-design or if we need to understand the context before we launch something, that's going to take more time to get to a project launch. Like, yeah, but so is launching something really shitty that ends up (laughs) hurting people. By the way, the media finds out. It's like, we could also do that, but it's not working for you. So are you willing to slow down a little bit to like, you know, make a better idea, basically? That's my favorite part. Oh, so you don't want to test any of your assumptions? Yes. You're like really willing to like go in blind and see, let's just see what happens after we invest half a million. (laughs) That's very hard. Yeah. And it's awesome. Honestly, I'm curious if you feel this way. It's part of the reason I love being a consultant is we hold an immense amount of power mm. in, in terms of internal influence within those systems. So sometimes I'll work with partners at huge corporations and they're like, we wanna do this, this, this. I'm like, yeah, totally. This is why it's, yeah, I totally agree. Let's do it this way. And then all of a sudden I've said it and their leadership is like, oh, the consultant. <laughs> and my team, by the way, has been saying it for like five years. But <laughs> once I came in, it was like, yes, here, yes, this is what I believe. I think that's also an awesome ability because they hire us because they want our perspective. They want to do something different. And that's one of my favorite parts is just like, how do we move things quicker? Because we are, we have expertise and we can, it comes with that level of power for better or for worse. So people will listen to us because we're from the outside. I don't think it should be that way. I think they should be able to recognize (laughs) the great ideas inside the company. But if we can help, you know, that's awesome. Do you feel like, and I know you and I have talked about this before too, like your studio setup, right? Your size, the fact that you're agile or whatever, do you feel like it impacts how you could say or like share thoughts with like clients or partners? Like, do you feel like that's more empowering than, I don't know, my always like eternal assumption is that the larger you are, the harder it's like, harder it gets to like speak your mind because now you're responsible of like 500 people and you don't necessarily know all those 500 people so you can't really speak on behalf of your team right so do you feel like this like like lean agile design studio also like brings you power to be that powerful consultant oh yes i wish we could talk about this for three more hours (laughs) yes because now you're talking about like the business side and how it impacts your culture and all that yes i personally I don't know what the future holds for Beta, you know, the, 
in the long, long, long term. But in the short term, I definitely believe in having a small agile team. To your point, like we're constantly learning. We can see what each other are learning. We can adapt. And it's, um, yeah, I think that's the hard part with growing the business yeah. is I started this business to like create create sustainability and stability for me and my family. And I don't want to be in a situation where I'm tra- kind of trapped, which is, you didn't say that, but that's how I would feel where you're just like, oh, I don't really like this project or it doesn't super align or I need, yeah. I need to push them more. But, you know, our payroll is $500,000 a month and I can't risk that. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. Yeah. that's what scares me. Doesn't mean you can't grow and do good work. It just feels like I want to go at a pace where I feel like I can control it when we get too big going back to the pace right like fast growing companies i'm sure have much more cultural issues than firms that really like matured over time right so i think there's definitely that and i think maybe like one way to hack that and we often talk about this with my friend christine who's founder of open inclusion um she also like found a firm to grow to 60 people very fast i think she sold out and now her team is like 15 people i should say i'm not growing Okay, so cool. You're like, <laughs> um, like, can we just like find all these like studios that we really admire the work and then we all like come together? Like, if we really need to do a super large mm. project, like we all do it together so we don't have to grow. Like, that's my like ultimate mm. like collective business model, like mutualistic business model. Um, nice. In order to hedge that risk i don't even know if it's a risk but like yeah i know we talked about this before and i i think it's important to highlight this too because the nuance is not only is like the corporate navigation too but even your business and how it's structured kind of impacts um how much you can serve your mission and the way the values you also like hold while serving that mission too so i think especially in the world where we're like exploring like equity it's I feel like even more responsible and accountable to be like, I want to be able to speak up, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, yes. In a very totally. polite, diplomatic, you know, approachable way, but I want to be able to like just say no or like that doesn't sound right because I'm not responsible to like thousand people or I don't have a board that I also need to like go back and report to. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. that's important to highlight. But you know, we're not saying this as an advice, like never grow. No, totally. Just my personal opinion, my personal choice. <laughs> um, yeah. But speaking of advice, we would love to get nuggets of information from you for anyone who wants to try to make progress in this world, regardless of the field. Um, mm. what, would your, uh, what would be your advice to them? Oh, so it's the designer specifically or just anyone who wants to change the world? Okay, great, cool. Oh boy. Oh man. Now I'm like, whoa, everyone. <laughs> what would I say? <laughs> okay, let me think. I guess I think, okay. Something that I learned from my mentors early on was how important it was. I think there's a again, Mario, one of my mentors taught me so much, comes from community organizing described to me the life cycle of an activist, Mm. which I would describe as just like someone who cares deeply about changing the world. And there's this phase where like, you think it's your fault. Like I was speaking to my childhood, like you feel a lot of personal pressure and shame. And then you discover how messed up things are in the systems. And then you get super mad. You're like, what the F? Like, this is how we're treating people. This is how healthcare works. What? (laughs) You get super mad and you're like, this is not okay. And sometimes if you can find people that, 
are mentors to you, that find joy in the work, that are doing this out of passion, like you, um, it it changes fundamentally how you are in the work. Because then it becomes about like, I'm showing up to work on things I love with people I love. This is going to be fun. It's also going to be hard, but it's going to be fun. But sometimes folks get stuck in the pain and they never find that community. The way Mario describes it is like, we used to come together in these political homes, whether that was a bowling group, a religious group, like whatever it was, people had a place to come together when things were hard and to talk about what they were upset about. But that's become increasingly dissolved, especially during the pandemic. And so people are seeing a lot of this and learning a lot of this and getting super angry online. Mm. And then they're like, where, who, who can I talk to? Who's going to mentor me? Like, how do I see the joy in the action part? And the only thing that groups are asking them to do online is like, donate. You're mad, donate. You're mad, donate. And so there's this loss of this, like, that critical part of the cycle. So I would say that would be my invitation is if people want to be sustainable in this work is find your crew, whether they're peers or mentors, you need people to just be able to decompress with and to get excited about the work and to feel like you can move from the pain into the joy because the pain fuels us or it can completely stop us. And so I've seen a lot of people, especially, you know, my cousins and friends and family in the younger generation getting in the stop phase I'm like, no, we need you. This movement needs um, you. Yeah. And also, I want you to be happy. So I'm trying to find, that's my invitation is like, find what you need to get to the joy-filled anger and lessen the pause. What a beautiful advice. I love that so much. Find your crew. And also like to turn that anger into productivity, right? Not like just like yelling out into the world or even to your like <laughs> donations. Yeah, but like, do you really feel like you're acting on it? So I think um, channeling that somehow, and I do like, I, it's a very hard thing too, right? There's so many problems in the world that at mm -hmm. some of the state, as for some of them, maybe I'm in a more productive stage, but for some of them, when I hear about it, I'm still angry. <laughs> so maybe Yes, totally. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful advice and uh, oh my God, I love that so much. That's great. You. Thank you. And this was such a treat. I think we can just like talk for hours on like everything. Agreed. <laughs> so for everyone listening, this is like a snapshot of if we were like to come together and what this might have looked like. Just a lot of like excited back and forth um, feedback. But Tanya, it's such a pleasure. Uh, I think you're, I mean, you're such a delightful presence in the field of design too. And I oh. truly encourage everyone to check out your work in studio and um, try to be part of the crew. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me. This is such a treat. It really was. And that is this week's episode of What's Wrong With The Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the episode description, and you can also find them on our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz. If you found value in the show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.